Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. While the UK's negotiators go to work on a patriotic full English, we've enjoyed a hearty <laughs> pan-European breakfast of croissants, salami, oatmeal, churros and pickled herring. <laughs> and now our hearts are pounding out the rhythm of Ode Joy. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the crew. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. So it's a busy weekend with the resignation of Pretty Patel's chief civil servant, Philip mm. Rutnam, and the news at the same time that Boris Johnson's partner, Carrie Simmons, is pregnant. Obviously, if that is the sole reason she got pregnant, she really is playing the long game. <laughs> um, is, the, is there anything suspicious about that timing, which certainly affected some of the front pages, or is this just sort of dead cat paranoia that seems to infect our reading of events? I don't know. It's like both of them are perfectly possible, aren't they? I noticed that basically every, even like lots of quite sensible people were saying, well, this must be time for exactly that. And I honestly wouldn't put it past them, but you have no basis upon which to say it. And they're such a catastrophically inept government that on pretty much any day you could pick to announce the baby and it would be blocking some kind of bad news. Well, I would like to pile a dead cat on top of that dead cat. Mm. And I saw someone on Twitter point out that actually they're keeping the Pretty Patel bullying scandal alive so as to distract from the Russia report, Brexit, okay, right, yeah. Grenfell, etc. Okay, well, that part we can be confident isn't happening. <laughs> isn't happening. <laughs> this is a legit scandal that is going on. Um, do you think that she is just a wrong un, or are we going to see the issue of bullying sort of come to the fore more generally? Obviously, uh, John. But recent guest John Burko mm-hmm. was kind of like the first person around where there are a lot of of allegations around there. Now this has come up. I mean, is are we reframing what? sort of counts as bullying what sort of behavior is legit so i think there's like two so two things are coming together um in a quite an unhealthy way the first one is you know parliament is an environment that is really conducive towards bullying I mean, one of them is that mps basically function as little smes uh, they're completely in charge of their staff they can say whatever they like do whatever they like really to the civil service without the civil service being able to say anything and it's a very high stress environment full of incredibly egotistical people and so that is just designed for bullying the other part is people have noticed i think that the word bullying can do serious damage to someone on a political level i think they did notice it with john burker i think they have noticed it with pretty patel and so you know people aren't going to wait for the results of the investigation or the inquiry they're just going to condemn them on the basis of it being said the people on the other side of the bait in the tory case it was going to be they were going to condemn john burko in the patel case it's it's that labor will condemn her and so they know they can just say it now and once you say it there's a real smear over someone's reputation you put those two things together and you get this incredibly difficult scenario of like well no we have to be delicate and careful here and find out what's going on and also address the system but because everyone is so self-interested that becomes a very very difficult thing to achieve so we have to wait and find out yeah i don't want to be old-fashioned but it's just it is just generally better in all of these cases to, we've got to a lot of, we've got a lot of space to fill we've got a lot of podcasts <laughs> <laughs> we got the time. So just just, just go fill the gap with opinions until we get the facts. Well, it is briefly worth mentioning, this guy has been permanent secretary in the Home Office during the most catastrophically inept period. In that guy. Putting aside the morality of it, you spe- I mean, I was speaking to an asylum seeker recently, been waiting for a decision for three and a half years. In that time, you're living on £25 a week. She's there with a, with a kid. You can't work. You can't do anything. You're just caught in unlife. And that happens because the government doesn't fucking work. And it would be nice if at some point... People the government the home office doesn't fucking work and it's nice at some point people gave more of a shit about that than just the stuff that's going on particularly with Pretty Patel right now Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain the Ruth Bader Ginsburg of Remain (laughs) (laughs) I know mate reportedly over the weekend 
the May government blocked Mary Beard from the Board of Trustees at the British Museum because of her Remain tendencies. Uh, so were you going to have to don a series of cunning disguises <laughs> when you attempt to secure future roles for the rest of your life? Shave my head. Look, Naomi Smith, <laughs> who is she? I mean, is this... Did that seem like a, a legit story? Is this a thing that... The government can just do. The Observer certainly seemed to think it was, and the trustees have spoken out and said how disgraceful they think this is. Um, but, I mean, I think what annoys me most about it is that on the 31st of January, Boris Johnson said, my job is to bring the country back together. Um, and not only have we seen zero attempt to do that, we're also potentially seeing very petty things like this. Um, of trying to keep internationalists out of public life altogether. Well, um, so, yeah, I think uh, it's, I, I, it's it's egregious stuff. Well, since the, the Thatcher's uh, St. Francis of Assisi speech, I mean, it's a long tradition in the Tory party where you say you're going to bring the country back together and then you do the exact opposite. Yes. So maybe he just thinks that's the deal. If you're a Conservative <laughs> Prime Minister, Theresa May did it, Thatcher did it. Yeah. But you're not actually meant to do mm, what you say mm, you're going to do. Mm, mm. Uh, Naomi, as our resident tactical voting expert, uh, a report from the Electoral Reform Society has said that 71% of votes at the general election weren't decisive in local results, even with mm-hmm. all the tactical voting going on. Is that better or worse than usual? Is is that about sort of standard? I mean, look, it, it's just not. It's news to precisely nobody mm. that we don't have democratic equality in this country under a first-past-the-post system. Votes are not equal. Um, my vote rarely counts because of where I live. Um, I'm sure that is that is true for for Same, um, yeah. well probably 71 percent, um, uh, and and we know that the outcome of most elections, general elections in the UK, are actually decided by a, a, a horrendously small number of votes in the end. Um, I thought that ERS report was interesting. We compared it a bit to our own analysis at Best for Britain of our tactical voting. It's slightly apples and pears. They, they don't sort of calculate it in quite the same way as we did, um, but. But, you know, what the one thing everybody knows is if it hadn't been for the big drive on tactical voting, the result would have been even worse. I guess this week has been an anti-racist campaigner for over 20 years. He founded the advocacy group Hope Not Hate in 2004. They took on the BNP in Dagenham and Barking and won and have performed undercover investigations into some of the world's most dangerous extremist groups. The group also helped foil a murder plot against the Labour MP Rosie Cooper by the neo-Nazi group National Action. The founder of Hope Not Hate will be taking us through its new State of Hate report later. Hello, Nick Lowells. Hello. So almost as soon as the report was launched, the Conservatives suspended several members for Islamophobic remarks, uh, as featured in the report. You've been very strong on Labour anti-Semitism as well, which has had a much higher profile in the media. How do you think the Tories have dealt with Islamophobia and have they sort of got off relatively lightly so far? I mean, I think they have got off lightly, um, partly because people and the media in particular have obviously been more focused about Labour um, but also I, I mean I think the Tories have made many of the same mistakes that Labour have made and they haven't actually learnt from that i.e. trying to kind of brushings under the carpet, trying to cover things up, trying to appear talking tough but actually doing little you know when this first came out a year ago um, you know, they publicly said that they were going to suspend people and actually those people weren't suspended or they publicly said that people had been booted out of the party and actually two months later they're all back in the party. So, you know, and also an unwillingness to both accept the problem, uh, let alone deal with it. So many parallels to how, how they how they the Tories have acted compared to Labour. Is Britain becoming a more bigoted place? 
or is there just more awareness of the problem? Presumably, many of these people were anti-Semitic or Islamophobic, you know, 10 years ago, and maybe they're only now being exposed as such. I mean, I think I think that's probably a difficult one because I think contradictory things are happening. Um, you know, I, I think what it is, I mean, if you, again, if you look back at the referendum and what that did and the spike of racist attacks that happened then and subsequently, I don't think there were more people being driven to racist attacks. I think people felt emboldened to do it. Those who might have done it anyway, uh, they got the green light. And I think, you know, when we think about the kind of cultural war, really, that's going on at the moment in Britain, and I think that's underlying a lot of the things, whether it's, you know, Brexit, whether it's, you know, the attitude of the Tory government and how they're deliberately playing into this. Um, there is a backlash against what they will consider kind of liberal political correctness. And they, they're talking that up. They're the victims. I mean, you know, if you look at the reaction of the government to um, the the expose of the government aid who believed in kind of race science and you know, stuff, you know, first of all, that person wouldn't have been given that job a few years ago under Theresa May. Secondly, if they had been exposed as that, they would have got rid of them straight away. What happened in this government, you not only got them doubling down and protecting the person, but they very quickly turned it on its head and used it as a cultural attack against the media, against the BBC, against political correctness, Westminster bubble. Um, you know, and, and that and that's worrying. I mean, you, you were talking earlier about the Pretty Patel stuff. I mean, you know, again, very quickly... They try to turn the tables. Now, they probably won't be able to survive that doing that. There's more and more stuff comes out about her. But um, again, their immediate reaction is to try to create, tap into this them and us, which the, the previous Tory government didn't do. Because what you're saying about that, yeah, the eugenics advisor, I've forgotten his name. Zabisky. <laughs> eugenics boy, as I will call him. <laughs> um <laughs> you know, that, that was one of those cases where we're sort of previously, I suppose, and that hasn't always been been true but you've sort of liked to think that there is a bit of a firewall between the government and the far right and this seemed to be even though he's not like not a full-on member of the alt-right or something uh but there just seemed to be that firewall didn't seem to be in place i think that's right i think two things are happening i think first of all that firewall has started to fall down it's it's been happening for a number of years but i think in a way the boris johnson government have continued that process in, in into the centre of the Tory party, whereas previously it was probably on the fringes. Things, you know, the reason that Nigel Farage and the Brexit party fared so badly in the general election, because, and, you know, the traditional far right is so weak organisationally, because you don't need these groups now, because you've got people in the centre of politics and in our media saying things that would have been considered far right a few years ago. But I think the the other element of this, the cynical element, is that the you've got a group of people, Boris and a group of people around him, who are cynically using this as well. You know, I don't believe necessarily, you know, Boris isn't a kind of, you know, certainly, not, I mean, I don't know if he's a race scientist or not, but I mean, you know, they will use these things because there's winning votes. Like before the election, they tested out certain questions around, you know, trans rights. They were trying to see what cultural elements they could tap into that they, they could take advantage of, both to betray their opponents on one side of the kind of liberal establishment. Um, and I think part of the attack on the BBC, which I think is going to be one of the big things over the next couple of years, it's all part of the wider kind of cultural war being held to account, etc. Well, this week, as well as we talking about the report, we'll also be looking at Britain's insistence on breaking free of anything that might even have glanced at Brussels on a map. <laughs> Patents regulations, the EU pandemic warning system, probably don't need that, the Creative Europe media programme, and much more besides.
That's after a few reminders from Naomi. Romaniacs will be taking on our little sibling podcast, The Bunker, in a no-hold-barred pod clash live on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre on Thursday, 2nd of April. Tickets for Romaniacs versus The Bunker are selling like hot British-made vegan empanadas right now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. We've got two panels for you. In the blue and yellow corner, Dorian, Ian and me for Romaniacs. And in the red corner, Roz, the brilliant stand-up comic Ahir Shah and producer Andrew for The Bunker. Plus, there'll be a special guest for each panel announced soon, so get your tickets before the rush. Of course, our Patreon backers get early bird notification and a discount on tickets, and that discount is open to new backers as well. So if you want to help us in our vital rearguard actions against Brexit and save a couple of quid too, search Patreon Romaniacs to sign up. And if you're on the $5 tier or upwards, you'll get the exclusive Ask Romaniacs special episode coming your way this weekend. That's Patreon Romaniacs to back the podcast and LeicesterSquareTheatre.com for tickets to Romaniacs versus The Bunker. Thanks, Naomi. First this week, at long last, Britain and the EU's trade talks have begun. Get your Brexit bingo cards out. We've got fishing rights, state subsidies, financial services (laughs) and whether we can have a lovely Canada-style deal. (laughs) Meanwhile, the government published its mandate for a US trade deal, which it says will increase growth in the country by a whopping (laughs) 0.16%. But the Canada-style deal would apparently lower GDP by 7%. What kind of time frame are we looking at, Naomi? When when would we actually start uh, experiencing the effects of this big drop or tiny increase? (laughs) So just to be clear, the the impact assessment work that was done last year... um, was showing that over 15 years, the benefits to UK GDP from a US trade deal would be around about 0.2% um, over 15 years, uh, compared to over the same time period, um, a drop of about 6.77% of GDP under Johnson's preferred sort of deal with the with the EU. Um, I think it's really important to remember uh, that we won't see real-term benefits of trade deals if tariff and non-tariff barriers have a big uh, impact on the price of goods so that that is worth remembering but when we would expect to feel the effects obviously that you know it's difficult to predict um the government has said it wants to cover 80 percent of existing deals by 2022 but of course transition ends at the end of this year 2020 um so if we begin to have shortages of certain goods um and rising prices that could be begun to be felt by early 2021. And where are these figures coming from? Are these figures that the government approves of or are they the kind of inconvenient figures that the government decides it doesn't want to listen to? Whether May's government, whether this government, when they when government officials hear figures they don't like, they dismiss them, they then go away and do their own figures and lo and behold... <laughs> They come out as being nearly exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know. Dominic Cummings going, go in again. Yeah, get the number right. Come out when you've got the figures right. Exactly, exactly. Two I mean, plus it, two equals five yeah. percent GDP. It's just common sense, though, that if you're if you're cutting access to a market, it's going to hurt you. And whether the government wants to believe that or not, that that just is very intuitive. I mean, everyone pretty much understands that. Um, And so the government's challenge now is to implement Boris Johnson's not so 
oven ready deal um, while simultaneously protecting the communities that he now um, uh, you know uh, uh, needs to keep on side from being adversely affected by the impacts of those deals and that's really the sort of Damocles that's hanging over his head at the moment. Ian have we learned anything new about what the UK wants from its EU trade deal? No, no, we know what we know what it wants. There's three things. Can I can I go through the three? We might as well. Yeah, do yeah, might as well. It's a Brexit podcast. It's a Brexit as well. Podcast. Fuck it, might as well and cover it's it. And, and it's trade, and it's the favourite topic. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, it's. I'm trying to contain my excitement. Okay, so I think this is. Okay. Um, so look, first one is level playing fields. We've discussed that enough. We, I think we we know the general outlines of how that works. The second thing is the fishing thing. So the fishing thing, legally, the UK has the law on its side completely. I mean, if you're a sovereign, independent state. You can have a 200 nautical mile barrier between you, and that's just your territory. That's what you got. Mm-hmm. That's what Britain wants. On the EU side, what they want is a continuation of the current system. The way the current system operates is that you have a bunch of fish stocks. As Rod said, and I think my favourite ever moment on this podcast, <laughs> there is no such thing as fucking British fish. You know, the stocks go all over the place. And the way the EU does it is it sets up a quota. Now, the quotas do not change. And each year, they come up, scientists come up with a total allowable catch, and countries get their, their set quota of it. If Britain was to be able to operate on what it wants, it would pull right out and it would basically do what Norway does. Norway goes into a conversation every year with the EU and it goes, right, this is the terms upon which we'll give you access to our waters, but they negotiate the quota. That's the big difference. The quota changes year by year. And if they don't like the look of it, they can just be like, look, you lads can fuck off. You're not going to come into the territory. That's what Britain wants. Legally, it is absolutely in the right. It can absolutely do all of that. The trouble is that the EU has all of the leverage. Because we send 80% of our fish to the EU. So if they go in response, fine. In that case, tariffs on fish. Our entire fishing, it doesn't matter whether you protect mm-hmm. your waters, your entire fishing industry is completely fucked. So they have all the leverage and we have the legal right on our side. Now you tell me which one you think is going to win in that <laughs> situation. It's going to be that. The second, the third part then is um, rules of origin. Um, the problem with our rules of origin is that we use lots of components from the EU to make things like cars, to make things like aerospace products. And that, therefore, wouldn't satisfy the rules of origin. We wouldn't be able to say this is a British product. So we're going to require a couple of things. We're going to need it to be diagonal, and we're going to need it to be full accumulation. That basically means that you can keep stuff from the EU as part of your internal quota, and also from third parties like South Africa, which we use a lot in automobile production. And we are going to want it to be full accumulation because we want to basically lower the amount of input that is required so that it's a very easy test to pass on that basis. That's the, the, Apart from uh, uh, level playing field, those are the two key negotiating rooms I would expect that the British government's going to pursue. Um, now, obviously, because Boris is, Johnson is a hard man, um, he has to keep uh, on table the idea that he will just walk away mm-hmm. if we don't get what we want. Um, is that is that rhetoric? Would he do that? What would the consequences be? I feel like the dynamics changed a bit there because what they're aiming for isn't actually that different to no deal, right? The the citizenship stuff is done. The the budgetary stuff is done. Um, So the only real advantage you even get from doing a deal is that it would take longer to happen. It wouldn't just happen overnight. You'd have two, three years because you can put an implementation, which I think is what they would do, is put an implementation phase into the deal. So you go, fine, this stuff all comes online in 2023 and that gives us a bit more time to prepare. I mean, ultimately, because that risk has now been lowered, it's more likely that he would do it. But I, I... 
mostly sort of feel because all of this is fucking i mean all the stuff i've just said no one's going to say it on fucking bbc news you know what i mean so like on that basis i think in the technicalities i still suspect they can just think they can just lose this shit into there and come away pretty much with some kind of deal my guess is just as it was remember in that period where we sat around for months trying to work out if he even wanted a deal or if they were going for no deal Mm. and my guess is they don't know you know they don't come up with anything and it's just sort of whichever opportunity just presents itself mm. so I really do think that one's very very hard to call but isn't isn't the cultural approach macho and we'll yeah. walk away we'll blame them and we'll play a game of chicken and because of Ireland and Gibraltar and all other things they'll blink at the last minute and give us Canada and they'll do a save as on the document scrub out Canada think, and insert they, UK I think they do think that but also I think that there's no damage to them by emphasizing their responsibility for it now with that macho talk. So ultimately what you're doing is if it does end up with Mm. no deal, then you go, well, fine, it was all their fault. They were so completely unreasonable. So whether you go for a deal, if you get a deal, you've got a deal. If you've got no deal, it was their fucking fault. Win-win. I think think that's Mm. definitely the approach. Nick, in relation to the far right and Brexit, um, I mean, obviously you can see where the kind of identitarian culture war stuff, you know, overlaps. Um, are these groups particularly uh, interested in, you know, whether we get like a hard WTO Brexit or difficult? I mean, I don't imagine they're pouring over rules of origin. Um, but, you know, the, the economics of, of Brexit, is, is that, does that animate them at all or is it purely the identity stuff? I think it does for some of them. I mean, I think, first of all, I'll say that Brexit on one hand has been a disaster for the organisations on the far right because, of course, you know, People aren't talking about race and immigration. They're talking about mm-hmm. no deal Brexit and all these other things that the far right don't traditionally talk about. Um, so I think so they've struggled to get um, any sense of kind of opening that they can talk about their preferred issues. Yeah, and even for example, Tommy Robinson when he tried to kind of muscle in on some of the kind of street protests, he had to admit that he didn't vote in the referendum. So mm. then suddenly becomes a great champion of Brexit and everyone goes, mm, no. Mm, and, and, he, and he gets his platform and then he just wants to talk about Muslims and talk about himself. You know what I mean? So, Pedophile. So, <laughs> so, so, it's, so I, I think that so that's on one hand. At the same time, a lot of their followers, Brexit means something to them because it means sovereignty, independence, setting your own immigration rules hating foreigners you know and that's not to say every brexiteer hate, hates foreigners but the far right ones certainly do and so on the um dem- uh, the celebration i should call it not a demo the celebration in um, parliament square at the end of january there were a load of neo-nazi leaders celebrating as well they mm-hmm. were happy so so i think i think it's been a kind of mixed bag for them but ultimately ultimately it's been really hard for them uh, as an organizationally and also because in a way boris johnson has stolen their clothes and their language and and has been able to deliver on something that the people want and identify with one one interesting thing we did um as part of the work we were doing with best of britain we did some door-to-door canvassing in bradford on this uh particular estate where the bmp had had councillors ukip had, had councillors um and you know our team who were who were doing doorstep canvassing um you know these were experienced people been been out 20 years with us during the real hard times as well they said they'd never had such a hard time on the doorstep hmm. where people who, who they were knocking on doors people were kind of saying but I voted Brexit. Why are they still here pointing at their Muslim neighbours? Oh, sure. And the kind of mm. open racism. And I think that's how, you know, Brexit has played out on the far right in terms of supporters, where you feel that you can say these things now because mm. you're allowed mm. to. Well, I mean, uh, if the if the 
Prime Minister is referring to ladies wearing the burqa as lesser boxes, then of course they are totally yeah. legitimised yeah. with their language. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing is with Brexit, Brexit means different things to to different people. Mm-hmm. And obviously if you're kind of driven by race uh, or, or racism and immigration, you see Brexit through the prism of that. Yeah. That's racist for you. <laughs> Everything's about racism. <laughs> um Nemi, we've just learned trade barriers with the EU will necessitate 50,000 extra customs officials. Oh, boy. Uh, so that's an exciting new job creation scheme. Mm. Um, just getting rid of red tape just mean introducing miles of patriotic blue tape. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I mean, I, I like 50,000 extra in, in bureaucracy costs when we were promised frictionless trade. It's just incredible. Um, we, were, we are literally literally paying for reduced trade mm. <laughs> like that, that that is what this means um and of course you know the money will be far 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 better spent as we all know on more medics to help with coronavirus and everything else um yeah it, it, it is red tape for blue there's no other way to describe it it's, it's still unconscionable even now like just to just the fucking madness of it I, you sort of get over after a while and then it comes, it comes back, back. Like, yeah fuck like that is no one has ever done this before well, no, like, it was no like you've is... happened it's, it's happened now you fought and you fought and then it's happened and you're just like this sort of numb acceptance and then you start talking about the details and go what no there must be some mistake have you checked but isn't is that there a what... loophole but isn't that why we started Romaniacs because nobody it was all this balance 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 on the on the mm. TV and radio and we were like can we just all meet once a week and just talk about how fucking crazy this shit is and we've we've, we've normalised ourselves into it, yeah. Nope. Forget how mad it was. Brexit still bad. <laughs> Our guest this week is Nick Lowell's chief executive of the anti-extremism group Hope Not Hate. Their latest report, State of Hate, highlights a contradiction in the modern extreme right. As he mentioned earlier, traditional parties like the BNP and National Front are now very weak. Brexit, but their ideas are increasingly mainstream across Europe. Uh, Nick, I'm going to be annoying and ask you to summarise the report in three words. <laughs> no, just, just sort, of, sort of briefly, what is the, the kind of tra- trajectory of extremism beyond what you said earlier about the fact that actually organisationally they've kind of been they've been kind of um, you know thrown thrown for a loop by the government. I think the the, the key trends is that. The far-right narrative has gone mainstream. There are many more ways for people to get into the far-right now. Conspiracy theories, the whole kind of men's right, you know, the whole kind of backlash against gender equality, um, the men's rights movement, things like that. Um, and but, but, the, but the other thing that we're seeing and the report focuses on is that the growth of Nazi terrorism, both in this country and abroad, and that 2019 was a year where there was a kind of formation, what we would say is the kind of, global far-right uh, community. So people are operating in the same way. The live streaming of attacks, the posting up manifestos before they go on, you know, the announcing at six o'clock, I'm going to go and attack this or that. Um, pe- you know, whether it's people driven by, you know, anti-Semitism or anti-Muslim hatred or whatever, they're, they're all following these same sort of pat- patterns now. They're using these encrypted platforms to recruit internationally, to encourage terrorism on a scale we've never seen before. Um, and the other element in the UK is the age of the people. So 12 people, 12 far-right sympathisers were convicted of terrorism last year in this country. Five were teenagers, two were 16 or under. We've got 10 more awaiting trial now. 
um, several of them teenagers. You know, what one one of them under sixteen. Um, so that that's really worrying. The other element is the emergence of kind of sexual violence. You know, now the far right Nazis have always hated women. You know, women had to stay in the kitchens and childbearers, whatever. But now what we're seeing over the last year or two is the really hard line element of the far right talking about sexual violence and particularly rape as a political weapon i mean it's i've done this 30 years i've never seen anything like it weird because they're very very concerned about grooming gangs you think that they were very against <coughs> sexual abuse or is it perhaps only a certain kind well it's about a certain time but it's also in their mind it's all about power they're allowed to do what they want and see behind it and today actually funnily enough um today we've we've put out a call for the group that we think is behind all this to be banned you know Mm. last week the home secretary banned a couple of groups that haven't existed for 13 months Mm. that's nice (laughs) yeah i mean no it is good but 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 one of those groups the son in craig division you know which is mainly made up of teenagers um, who had the most wild fantasies, sexual violence, killing people, decapitating people. But they were all actually part of a, another group called the Order of Nine Angles, which is a Nazi, Nazi Satanist group. In one hand, you know, they're laughable, the, these Satanists, because they are, you know, out central casting. It's altars, dressing up with antlers, mm-hmm. you know, things on their heads, whatever. But these are the most extreme group that i've ever seen and it's just openly saying that we have to cause chaos barbarism the level of violence and particularly grooming kids to do this as well because kids don't have the same moral boundaries that that's how they explain it because well, i mean obviously the, the ideologies here are very different but i mean are you seeing the same kind of people uh you know some kind of sort of psychological profile i guess of people who are attracted to islamist extremism just yeah. sort of angry young men looking for a purpose to- certainly and i think that um you know <sighs> Things go in cycles, don't they? And things go in trends, and partly mm. because of how the media report it, etc. But you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, if, if you either wanted to cause havoc and cause vi- extreme violence, or you had certain you know problems in your life and looking for some kind of outlet, you know, in a way, many of the many of the Islamist terrorists who followed that kind of lone wolf pattern were kind of were white converts you know, who who became Muslim to carry out their, their attacks. What we're seeing now, there's a very similar pattern to some of the loners who are now going off on the far right. Mm. And I think that, you know, we're going to see more of that because it's in the news. It's all over the internet. I mean, just the level of stuff on the internet's wild. Um, Nick, the, obviously the, the government um, has now sort of extended um, the laws around early release for terrorists and in reaction to... Um, uh, you know, London Bridge and, and other attacks recently saying that people who haven't served their full term shouldn't be released, etc. Um, but as I understand it, the majority of the referrals to the controversial uh, government prevent scheme are now f- white supremacist terrorist um, people rather than Islamist terrorists. Uh, is that do you mean where, where's hope not hates data on that or view on the balance of it really so the home office obviously love love their figures but they actually only categorize people about ethnicity right. so the majority of people are white but, but, actually, it, but it doesn't actually yeah. say what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so it would it could in theory include some mm. white converts, for example. But it only you know mm. it has people down in Asian or or, mm. or white. So, but you know clearly over the last few years there has been a growing trend, growing numbers of mm. people be being referred to prevent and channel blah blah blah. Um, but you know I, I I think that what I would say is that our 
both the government um, and also the kind of you know security services are just really in, ill-equipped to mm. face this new threat. Partly, I mean, if you look at the last government's kind of um, extremism strategy, counter-extremism strategy, you know, to them the far right were old-style Nazis, you know, mm. skinheads, swastikas, whatever. That's you know, the far right doesn't look like that anymore. You know, the anti-Muslim stuff, all the rest mm. of it. Uh, but also how these people operate, and um, you know, they they're just been really slow to understand. You know, the, the online element to it, the international element to it, the use of encrypted messaging. Um, but even, for example, like the Satanist stuff. I mean, I know of three different people who've been raided by counter-terrorist police in the last couple of years who were allegedly involved in kind of far-right terrorist groups um, and who had this Nazi Satanist stuff in their houses and each time the police mystics they didn't they, know what to look for they didn't know what, mm. what, what all this bizarre stuff was so I mean I think that you know and it's always difficult because obviously threats are always evolving but um, you know we're talking about small numbers of people but it's just the level of violence they're talking about and mm. the age one of the things that we've noticed we do a lot of school work and kids, we, we tend to find that kids know that you can say and can't say certain things about race. And they, mm. they check themselves because they don't want to get into trouble. Mm. But when it talks about women or girls, they, they talk about them in a really misogynist because they feel that they can. And mm. actually some girls use language as well, which is like pretty wild. So I think that, um, you know, these are other things that, you know, we and others have to start kind of addressing more. Um, it's not just old style Nazis. And how much is the um how responsible is the press for some of this language obviously they're not going to be using the same language that these sort of groups are going to be using on kind of internet forums um but sometimes it's just a politer version of of those ideas it, how often i mean for example Katie Hopkins the the things she was fired for a few years ago the cockroaches column i mean that seemed to me straight up sort of neo nazi-ish rhetoric how often do you think it, it, you know, sort of newspapers cross the line now and feed that? Sure, I mean, a lot. And I think that, I mean, often they don't have to say really extreme stuff because it's all about the basic narrative. Mm. You know, Muslims are dangerous, immigrants mm. are bad. Mm. You know, we Britain's got worse because of all this multiracial, multicultural stuff. You know, let's go back to the old days. And And, and I think that, so I think that, you know, it's sometimes difficult to point to certain articles and say this pushes people in itself, but it's all part of the kind of the wider mood music that, that's going on. I think, for example, like let me give you a good good example. Um, a few years ago, the Norwegian um, Anders Breivik went out and murdered seventy seven people in in Norway. Yeah, and for him, it was about the Muslim takeover. He wanted to kickstart the war and blah blah blah. But see, underpinning his ideology and it's the same for the killer in New Zealand underpinning this in sense of Islam is is a supremacist religion um, and there can be no accommodation with it Western society is too liberal and it's too accommodating of this and it's allowing people in who are going to take over and and then you get to main center-right mainstream characters who won't advocate the violence end but will say similar sorts of things mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to mention people by name because they're probably legal issues. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, there are people who write who basically say it's all doom and gloom. Muslims will never, you know, uh, never integrate in society. They're they're breeding on purpose. You know, whatever, whatever. And I th- I think that's the problem. Then you get people like Darren Osborne, 
who gets wound up by by reading the Daily Mail, reading the BBC, going then finding Katie Hopkins and Tommy Robinson online, mm. jumping in his van and driving to try to go and kill mm. people. So, you know, it, it, I think that... Uh, there was a really interesting point that Yvette Cooper made at the launch of your report earlier this week, which was um, around the algorithms serving all of this. And so she'd set up a fake account to go onto YouTube and have a quick look at, I think it was something to do with Toby Robinson. And then automatically you are just then bombarded yeah. with far right, mm-hmm. outright nasty stuff. And so even if you were you know, a teenager who maybe out of curiosity had, you know, thought, oh, I'll just have a quick look at that. And then from, you know, it's only a matter of time before you are so bombarded with all of this rhetoric and messaging that it, you can understand why people mm. are then well, I never, completely I, brainwashed. I wrote a, a piece about Jordan Peterson a couple of years ago, but, maybe three mm. years now, and I was still getting mm. Jordan Peterson. I mean, he's not the yeah. worst by any means, but it was like, why You're that? Prompted. Why not? Yeah. Why am I not getting music videos from a band mm. I wrote about mm. at that time? Mm. Why is it skewing so, that it, way? Exactly. And so I think, you know, Nick Nick's highlighted that the internationalist aspect of these neo-Nazis and terror sympathisers that are occupying some maybe slightly obscure encrypted platforms but the really big Google-owned Facebook-owned platforms are also you know their algorithms are not helping either Well I, I wanted to ask you actually because the, you know, the report sort of concludes that people like Milo Yiannopoulos and Tommy Robinson um, you know no platforming did actually sort of work because they'd lost a lot of their revenue streams and it said oh they can go elsewhere but actually these sort of alternative platforms uh, they're not half as lucrative. They've got far fewer users. Does does th- do those examples increase pressure on the likes of YouTube, Twitter, Facebook to sort of take on the gatekeeping role, which a few years ago they absolutely had no interest in doing? Mm. Can you can you show them? Okay, this works. Mm. Therefore, you should do more of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a combination of political and public pressure is forcing social media companies to change, or most social media. <laughs> companies to change and also i think that you know uh, groups like facebook do get encouraged when they can see an, an actual impact and also because they can then celebrate that publicly that you know we, we've shut down Tommy robinson and that's had a re- real impact i mean the danger is of course and you know we're aware of this and it's always a balancing act you know that shutting people down allows people to play the victim and it's freedom of speech and stuff like that so we have to balance out the 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 risk that we reinforce this notion that they are the victims and in a way their own supporters their own core supporters double down um with their inability to speak to much larger audiences now for someone like tommy robinson it was quite clear his ability through through facebook and through youtube to speak to millions of people every single day um and have interactions with tens of thousands of people um you know coming under the charge of you know we're we're curtailing freedom of speech amongst his support it was worth doing but i mean milo's an interesting one so last week um a number of the really i mean pro-terroristic hardline telegram groups got taken down a handful of them got taken down because they were doxing someone right um and milo came to their defense on the issue of free speech yeah, I mean, the, these are groups that would probably call for gay people to be killed. I mean, mm. I mean, they're really, mm. you know, but it's they all see themselves as part of the same struggle now. So, I, but, and I think the the other issue around the whole freedom of speech debate is that we haven't won it and we're losing it. 
because I think that you know we we are seen to use bureaucratic bounds to shut down people rather mm. than winning the argument that with rights come responsibility mm. Mm. and freedom of speech should always have limits to it, which most people accept, but we don't frame it in that way. So you know Tommy Robinson's thing a few years ago where he had to tape across his face and he had Trump's um, Trump Junior tweeted mm. out in support of him and Donald Trump got you know some ambassador the British ambassador got hauled in to get told off about the treatment of Tommy Robinson. And was it shows that we were actually losing the wider political argument about freedom of speech. So it, it, it's it's not a, it, it's more complex, and we've got to be much better at winning these arguments. I read a book recently about the um, the alt right in America, and where what it seemed was that it was almost it, it, at times almost impossible to tell the difference between the kind of the grifters and the fanatics and there were almost sort of some people that started off as just kind of grifters doing stuff for attention and a bit of money and ended up becoming more and more racist and anti-semitic and misogynist and then others that were just clearly this they were just kind of like riding a bandwagon um and he, the, the writer almost had to create this sort of taxonomy of the far right do you try and make those just distinctions as as well like how much is it important what you believe their motives to be versus the outcome, i.e. if someone is just an ironic racist or a sincere racist, does that matter if the result is racism? Well, I mean, I think there's different tactics you have to use for different people, but they pose both pose threats in different ways. You know, the hardline fanatic obviously poses a real threat because they're more motivated to go, um, you know, and target people or encourage their supporters to do stuff. But last year we, we had a situation with, with a YouTuber, one of the biggest YouTubers in the world, who, out of a desire to shock started using some anti-semitic tropes um got but got millions of 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 subscribers to his youtube channel now he he did this like he does lots of other things to shock because that creates interest from his supporters whatever obviously you know understandably liberal society was outraged they pushed back at him and you know this is anti-semitic whatever he apologizes he he offers to give fifty thousand dollars to the uh, adl an anti-hate group in the u.s um and saying oh, i didn't realize um but of course then he gets such pushback from his supporters not really because his supporters were anti-semitic mm. but it's like he's had to apologize to somebody else you don't mm. do that. So, of course, then he had to retract it by saying, oh, I've looked into the ADL and they're a very dangerous organisation and I'm not going to give them 50,000. All his supporters were cheering away and he just pumps out more anti-Semitic stuff. So it, I think one of the problems we're, we're facing now, um, and I laugh there because I got told I'm allowed to laugh on this programme and all I've talked about is miserable stuff. But, uh, <laughs> no, but no, I mean... I, I, th- I think generally we I, laugh at the miserable stuff. Yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah you've taken it to a new extreme. <laughs> I'm a self-hater. Uh, no, but I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't even know what I was going to say. No, but I, I think one of the problems we've got—it's like conspiracy theorists. You know, we can all laugh at people who talk about the earth being flat or you know make up little pictures on the internet about you know the false moon landing or whatever. Um, and there is a there is a comedy value in a, a lot of this stuff. But once you start, you know, I mean, our data, we've been doing some work on it. Once you start to believe in one, you're more likely yep. to be, believe mm. in another. And very quickly, suddenly you've got Holocaust denial stuff. You've mm. got great replacement theory. You've got Sharia no-go zones. And you've got anti-vaxxers and measles back. And we, yeah, yeah. Um, and finally, I suppose, on a, on a kind of practical note, not everybody is, is going to have uh, what it takes to do what some of these are very kind of like brave uh, kind of activists are doing, like infiltrating these these groups and so on. Are there things that um, 
that you recommend that just people do if they encounter stuff either you know in person or online like what should what do people do do you do they do they report it do you try and sort of push back is there a, is there a kind of a way to sort of I thought this? you were teeing me up to say you can donate to hope not hope <laughs> that, no, no, that's a, that is definitely that, one of the things no 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 I mean I think I think I, I mean one of the things one of the things we say is that you know we've all got a role to play now obviously if you're confronted with a situation on a bus or a train yeah it's not always easy to stand up against a, you know a group of young blokes who are shouting abuse at someone but you know people people should do you know people should challenge hate where that where they see it people should report hate i think one of the other things as well people you know and in a way this brings us back to the whole brexit situation people have got to show solidarity to people Mm -hmm. you know i mean it's like where i where i live there's quite a few people from like romania and and poland or whatever and they feel really frightened and really scared Mm. you know they don't know what's going to happen to their situation you know their living their status they don't know what's happening their kids blah 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 you know it's the same with you know black and asian people are feeling increasingly threatened they feeling that you know people are you know the way that the immigration language is being used or whatever so i think that you know even to small things like being friendly to your neighbor if they're, if they're from a different background or giving support i mean i've i've heard some great stories of you know friends of mine who um you know have clubbed together done a little card to the per, you know to the romanian living down the street or whatever but those small things are important as well Now it's time for To the Barricades, our weekly call to action for Romaniacs listeners. Naomi, what will be making anti-riot shields out of bin lids this week? I think it's a literal barricade this week, isn't it? Because of self-quarantining over (laughs) any sniffle or or cough or cold. Um, So seriously, though, um, not in terms of um, checking on older people necessarily because of um, the virus, but more in terms of supplies. There's been a shortage of all sorts of supplies already. People are panicking and it's difficult to get I don't know, hand sanitizer and loo roll and all these things that the government are telling us we need. So if you've got an elderly neighbour, I would suggest just, you know, offering to go to the shops to them, make sure that they've got some stuff, maybe share your stuff with them. Um, and then one MP uh, earlier this week said the most sensible thing people can do if they haven't already done so is to get the flu jab. Because then if you do get poorly, you know it's not the normal flu. Um, and that's sort of a, a good way of knowing uh, whether or not you've just got typical standard flu or whether your symptoms are potentially related to coronavirus. So we all need to keep healthy. Remainers need to be there fighting the good fight. You can still get some flu even if you have had the jab. Right? Yeah, yeah. But um, it certainly seems to be some of the advice that, that um, Public Health England have done in briefings to the MPs and that they're now passing on to people, which is get the flu jab so at least you know that you ruled that one out and if you are getting poorly then it may well be worth getting checked out for the coronavirus. I saw a really nice very small it seems trivial bit of advice but it's not trivial for the people involved was that because uh, the hospitality industry is being wrecked basically from people not wanting to go out or things like the London Book Fair being cancelled which suddenly means always knock on it's basically like if you do eat out anywhere like tip generously be aware that actually there are a lot of economic consequences mm-hmm. of this even mm-hmm. at this early stage of just kind yeah, of worrying hugely. a lot of people are sort of hurting mm-hmm. and if you can just sort of uh yeah help a little bit and chuck a bit more money their way. It's true, a hotelier that I was speaking to um, at the start of the week, he's got lots of hotels across London and he was saying that the day the um, uh, 
person was found to have coronavirus at the conference at the QE2 centre um, about three weeks ago now, um, their occupancy rates dropped from about 90% to 22% in like a couple of days. Had a huge impact almost immediately. And big companies like Google, as I understand it, have banned all um, international travel for staff um, implementing work from home policies almost immediately. It's not just, you know, wait to self-quarantine if you're feeling poorly, but everyone quarantine themselves as much as they can already and of course then that has other economic impacts because that's people not buying their coffee on the day to work not buying their sandwich mm. from the corner so shop so if you're doing it out all the starters desserts yeah. olives garlic bread on the go side all out on that go all out and then massive tip <laughs> finally this week exposing the country to a pandemic to own the libs <laughs> There's a schism between Number 10 and the Department of Health over the UK's access to an EU pandemic warning system as coronavirus goes viral. <laughs> it's thought the UK negotiators rejected it because they didn't want to be seen looking for anything more than the basic Canada deal. But the NHS has warned the risk of a pandemic could be heightened without continued cooperation with the EU. Ian, you very wisely said Downing Street is off its fucking tits. <laughs> Actual quote. Right. Night have nurse you, can do that. Have you got... <laughs> strong stuff. Have you... Uh, have you anything to add to that, or do you think that's the sum total of its, uh, its strategy? It's a good executive summary. Um, I, there's not even any ECJ involvement, so I, I presume it's just because they think it, it handed them leverage. I mean, that's that's the only way you know you look at it. And you, but there is just like, I, I was talking to someone at the time, and it was just like, what the fuck kind of conversations <laughs> are they even having in there? You know, like at which at some point there was a conversation where someone's like, should we be part of the pandemic warning system? And someone else said no. And you're just like, where did you, mm. like, don't you just want to stop it and reverse engineer this conversation so you find out what cat- went so catastrophically wrong in your mind that that was the conclusion you eventually arrived at? I presume it is leverage. I can't see any other reason that it would work. Matt Hancock appears to have got the right end of the syringe on this one for once. Is that going to um is that gonna hurt his chances in uh in then this cabinet of fools? Oh, who knows? I mean I think the problem isn't so much that the cabinet is stupid or dumb but dogmatic um, and it's constantly in campaigning mode rather than governing mode and leading mode and yes Hancock was kind of good the other day uh, but basically the government's just been far 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 too slow um, out of the blocks to communicate important messages um, and you know all because of petty boycotts of the Today programme and Good Morning Britain combined listenership of I think about 8 million or something like that and you know is therefore an incredibly useful way to tell at scale, the population information that they need for their public health. Yeah, you really don't want um, dogmatic, power crazed people no, in charge when there's a got. virus. That's what we've got. <laughs> <laughs> uh, elsewhere, the government says it's withdrawing from the unified patent system, which was designed to help European countries streamline their patent processes. This is patently a bad idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> You look what? far too pleased with yourself for what just happened. <laughs> Ian, what, what is the unified patent system and, and why is it a good thing? At the moment, um, patents aren't really harmonised in, in the EU. It's weird. It's like a weird area. You know, Europe's default position and everything is just we'll fucking harmonise that shit. But they haven't done it with patents. You go to an office, you get one, you get bundles of patents for different territories. And actually, it costs an awful lot of money because you have to get different translations for each set. So it costs tens of thousands of euros. Unlike in the US, you get a patent in the US... Same kind of area, same kind of economic um, sort of value. Do it for a couple of grand, basically. Right. It's much, much easier. And that's one of the reasons that as a, cust- as a patent um, customs area, fucking hell, I've been saying that for so many years now, I can't say it in any other way. As a patent territory, America does terribly well. 
The idea then was to create two things, like a single European patent and a single European patent court, um, unified patent court. Um, and the British government was really into that once upon a time. David Cameron was pretty smart on it because he sort of realised that there was this, we were starting to become a kind of life sciences centre internationally. Like we had the Wellcome Trust, we've got the Crick Institute. We used to have the European Medicines Agency, not so much anymore. And he lobbied, managed to make sure we we're in the system, managed to make sure that that part, the life sciences uh, part and pharmaceuticals part of the court was going to be in London. Um, May signed up to this as well. Boris Johnson signed up to it as, as foreign secretary. And the thing that seems to have bothered them is the fact that it's still going to refer to the European Court of Justice for definitions of European law. Now, that just is not... A, it's not like you're coming under the European Court of Justice. It's just that during the court case, they're going to go ask the ECJ, what is mm-hmm. your definition mm-hmm. of, you know, um, an embryo? What is your definition of patent life? Yeah. Um, and they'll come back and say, well, this is what we it is under European law. It doesn't mean fucking shit. Mm-hmm. But apparently that is now too much. So mm-hmm. without even bother, I mean, a lot of work has gone into fixing up that court. A lot of British judges have worked into getting a British influence in how it operates. Britain's a huge patent territory. Um, and all of it has been for absolutely nothing because then the government just didn't even bother announcing it, just waited until a website contacted them and said, oh, no, you know what? Fuck it. We're not doing it anymore. And all the jurisdiction stuff is such a red herring. We did um, at Bessa written some research uh, at the start of last week polling um, showing that the vast majority of people want higher standards or the same standards as the EU. So we're just never going to, if the government is to, uh, you know, follow the will of the people and um, uh, and do that and commit to all of them, we're not lowering any of our standards on food. There's going to be no need to go to any kind of mm-hmm. arbiter anyway. So it's all just a massive red herring. It's such a, I mean, this is the, you know, the thing is that most of the stuff we talk about is the dismantling of existing systems, you know, like customs, like service. What this is, this dismantling of something that really could have actually been quite special. Like there were plenty of people who thought that that would mean that Europe, and with Britain having a massive role to play mm-hmm. in it, because we we really punch above our weight on patents, would be able to compete with the US and probably overtake it on patents. So it's just one of those things that no one gives a fuck because it doesn't exist yet. But it's just you writing off your future. And the fact that they did that, and then the next day Michael Gove is in the comments saying yeah. fifty thousand new customs for like, Oh, that's where you're putting your you're fucking attention, you know, yeah. on that, on rebuilding the past at the same time that you that you slice up the future it is dispiriting in the extreme finally the uk will be pulled out of the creative europe program for filmmakers and tv people in 2018 the program invested 74 million euros in uk film and distributed 145 uk films to europe that will all stop um so the air- today's show is just all fun isn't it it's just a barrage of good news mm-hmm. after good news it's not it's not okay back to the coronavirus um, <laughs> you know at- uh, you know, at Heathrow and so on, you get these, you know, posters saying film is great and TV is great and British creativity <laughs> is great. Um, but it doesn't seem to be a top priority. Do you feel that Britain, you know, the government is going to be kind of reaching into the coffers uh, to kind of plug that No, gap? no, I don't. Um, I mean, this probably all... You know, it's part of the cultural war stuff as well. You know, a lot of a lot of these things are, uh, and the programs and the films that are made, um, are one of our only weapons left in the fight against, um, you know, this populist culture war that that we're losing. Um, 
we're a world leader in post-production. We are the fourth largest um, entertainment market in the world after US, China and Japan. Um, and these are all really high paid jobs, highly skilled, but like the tech sector, highly mobile. Uh-huh. You know, they are not dependent on any, you know, particular mineral in the ground that we only have in this country in order to stay here. And they'll up and move and go to other places uh, who will offer them similar um, tax breaks that we've been offering the film industry for a long time here now, which is why Northern Ireland in particular and, and places like that have been um, attractive locations for things like Game of Thrones. But so has Malta uh, and Croatia <laughs> and all these other places which have nicer weather. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's just yet more insanity. Uh, will they backfill some of this? I hope so. Do I expect them to? No. Uh, when we look at, um, you know, the, the, the places that have received most EU funding um, around the country, of course, a lot of those are areas that were very deprived um, and you know, places like the Southwest and Cornwall, places in Wales that received a lot of EU funding because they were amongst the poorest communities in Northern Europe and therefore qualified for it. Um, and a lot of those places voted leave. But if we wind back to the 70s and earlier, were the Conservatives ever investing in those areas? No. So should we expect them to now? Well, probably not. Let them eat sovereignty. <laughs> Seems to be the strategy. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for our Brexit bridge, where every brick represents a value that helps us rebuild our links to Europe. Nick Lowell knows more than most about things in society which divide us. Uh, what would you put in the bridge? Well, I always think about food. So I would, um, I think, I think we need to eat and cook and try out different foods, and we should share it with our neighbours and our friends. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nick. And that's the show. Thanks to Ian Naomi and our guest Nick Lowell's from Hope Not Hate. Thanks for coming in. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster from Corner Shop, who joined us on the podcast last week. Their album, England is a Garden, is out today. You can buy it at ampleplay.co.uk, while the pound is still worth something. And now for some thanks for our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to Louise Elliott, Ian Power... Tim Walls, Dia Mishra, Cheryl Miller, Joe Best Rothery, Megan Bennett, Richard Roberts, Laurie Tomlinson and Francis Michelle. It's a brimful of thanks from me to Martin Wills, Jeff Heerman, Lisa Grab, Yvonne Riedel-Brown, Ian Tidder, Richard Murphy, James Hanfrey, Jared Marklew, Rob Willens and Jim Coleman. And it's a full continental breakfast from me to Guy Wilmot, Michael Warburton, Peter Waitley, G, Saul C, Marcus Rothfuss, Jennifer Ann Roberts, Disky, Jem, and Bridie Conroy. We'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.